0: Oh, that's funny. Good morning. Good morning. One more time for the kids. How about that? Yes, absolutely. That's why we're all here for the kids. No, thank you to Tiffany Armstrong and our Kidport directors, Tracy Kuhn and Emily White, who uh, they've been practicing that for weeks, and I'm sure it went exactly as they planned it to go. Uh, So good morning. Uh, So Bo, he he found them. Uh, He figured out where they are. That's the Christmas gifts. That is. Uh, I found out uh, this weekend on Friday afternoon, he asked he wanted to go play downstairs with some toys, which isn't necessarily an abnormal thing. And so I went down there into the basement, and we get, he doesn't necessarily jump to the train set or the Ninja Turtle toys. He, he kind of passively looks down at the ground and puts his feet together and puts his hands behind his back and goes, Dad, I, I think I want to play down here by myself. Which is a brand new sentence for him, um, and so instantly I knew that he knew where they were. Um, and so, but I wanted to play dumb, right? Because I don't want him to get better at the lying thing, right? I want him to think that it's working, and so that way I'll always be able to tell. Because parenting is a seven-dimensional chessboard. Um, so I redirected him, and I had to go find. Uh, I had to eventually find a new hiding spot. For the Christmas presents, um, I really needed that one to last more than a year, but you know, it's okay. We'll figure it out. I do need your advice on something, however. So, if you have any thoughts on on this next part, I would love it. We've been asking Bo what he wants for Christmas since early November, uh, just you know, getting that holiday season. Uh, and the first time we asked, maybe like 10 days before Thanksgiving, we're like, "Hey, buddy, you know, what do you want for Christmas?" Without hesitation. Right? He had it loaded. He was ready to go. He jumped right in as if he was waiting for us to bring it up. And he says, A real sword. <laughs> I'm not kidding. A real sword. Those are the words he used. Um, and so, the thing I didn't hear him correctly, uh, I asked him 15 more times, and each time he confirmed with a straight face that he does, in fact, want a real sword for Christmas. He's four. So we've, uh, we've, we've brought it up um, just every week, in our conversations have just really challenged by how we're going to make this happen. Because, um, you know, we, we took Bo to see the Santa Claus, and he sat on Santa's lap, and, Beau, and Santa asked him a question, like, hey, buddy, what do you want me to bring you for Christmas this year? And he said, a real sword. And the Santa Claus looked at us and, and just, good luck, is what he said. Um, so if I guess he only deals with, like, fake swords. Um, so not real ones. So if you've got any wild ideas about how to make a a little boy's dream come true, I would love your advice on that when it comes to medieval weapons. Um, So anyway, it's good to be together this morning, two weeks in a row. This is fun. Uh, I've never been called up for an encore before, so we'll see how this goes. Um, You can be uh, thinking about Mike death right this morning. This cold and flu season has really really been no joke, uh, no joke for him. Um, So I thought we would just, you know, pick up where we left off last week and just dive even further right into the Christmas story. Um, And so, yeah, I I got a lot of feedback last week about the history and all these things that are happening around the Christmas story. And so without really your permission, we're just going to do more of that if you're okay, Um, because there's a whole other side of the coin that we didn't even get to last week. So just a little bit of review if you weren't here. It's online. Uh, it, it was, we, we dove deep into the history of Rome and specifically one main character there, Caesar Augustus. Um, and Caesar Augustus, he was the first true emperor of Rome after it split from, as, from a republic. He became the sole emperor of Rome and he was called the, the son of God, the king of kings, the prince of peace, And he earned those titles through deliberate military violence in the name of empire building. That was the conclusion we we came to about Caesar Augustus last week. Um, And so the gospel writer Luke, he begins his version of the Christmas story, as you'll remember. At about that time, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire. So this, this particular line of scripture was incredibly intentional specific to his audience. I mentioned last week that there's three tellings of the Christmas story in Scripture, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark just kind of skips right over it, gets right to the good stuff, I guess. Um, And just a quick aside on this, as we think about Caesar Augustus, as we think about what these writers are saying about Jesus, not just the Gospel writers, but all of the writers of Scripture. Think about if Caesar Augustus would have picked up one of these first copies of the gospel, or really any Roman centurion. What do you think would have happened to a person spreading information about a new prince of peace, about a new king of kings, about a new son of God? I don't want it to get lost on us, the risk that these men and women were taking by following Jesus. These words would have been the beginning of a revolution. This has been the the razor's edge of a new way of living. And so when we read the Bible, every time we read the Bible, we should be reading with that deep level of reverence for the risk that these people took in spreading the good news. Because it certainly, had it been discovered that they were writing about this, these men and women would have been killed instantly. Um, There's that verse in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, I've come to set man against his father right? This is, this, is what, this is what this is referring to, right? This kind of love, this kind of love, up, love uprising was not going to fit nicely into your father's traditions, right? This wasn't going to be return to some great Jewish era of the past, but it was a gateway to a revolution, a new revolution of love in the world. And so each one of these disciples, each one of these gospel writers they would have picked a different target audience. They did pick a different target audience to write towards. And so last week when we were talking about Luke, um, he's writing to the ever-growing group of Gentiles in Jerusalem uh, who are beginning to call Jerusalem home after the Roman conquest throughout the Middle East. And so refugees from across the region are flocking to Jerusalem to try to find a new home and a new way of living after their homes had been destroyed in the Roman conquest. And so Luke is specifically targeting this group of people. Um, And he begins with a reference to that oppressive power, to Caesar Augustus, because he wants these listeners, he wants these readers of the first gospel to understand that Jesus is one of them. He He wants these readers to see Jesus as a displaced refugee, just like they are. Matthew wants the same thing, except he's writing... To the Jewish people in Jerusalem, he's targeting specifically the in-group, the religious in-group that's living in Jerusalem. These are the people of Moses, the ones that God liberated from oppression in Egypt and delivered into the Promised Land. And so what we learned last week is that this group of people um, is not necess- necessarily isolated from the pain of the Roman conquest, um, but, they are, but they are still living in their home that's being taken over. And so Matthew's trying to write to this group of people to try to convince them that this Jesus, this is the Savior, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And he also wants them to know that this Jesus is one of them. And in order to do that, he begins his telling of the Christmas story with a family tree. If you're familiar with the Matthew story, maybe you've skipped this part uh, because it doesn't really seem like it fits, right? It's 17 verses outlying the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. But this is fairly common uh, in, in early Hebrew writing. we got to think about it kind of like a bibliography or a, a reference page. This is how people knew that the author did their own research, right? that they did the work, that they know what they're talking about. And so Matthew talking to this, this very religious, hyper-religious group of Jewish people living in Jerusalem, he starts with a genealogy tracing Jesus' lineage lineage all the way back to Abraham, because he wants this group of people to know that Jesus is one of them as well. Um, And so, Matthew's introduction in the first few chapters, it serves as this invitation, like I said, for the Jewish audience to see themselves in the story, to see Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, as one of their own, right? There's a lot of skepticism, right? There's been a lot of people who've claimed to be the Messiah. Why is this one special? Well, because he's he's one of ours. One of your ancestors is one of his ancestors. He then concludes that genealogy with a quick birth announcement. His his Christmas story is really, really quick. There's Mary, there's Joseph, the mangers, the shepherds. Um, And it's because he wants to tell a different side that we're gonna look at here. And so chapter 2 of the book of Matthew begins like this. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now that looks familiar, doesn't it, to what we talked about last week. Here's Luke chapter 2, right? At about that time, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire, right? It's almost like they were sitting in a room together as they were writing this. Like, how are we going to, to model this to look the same but specifically speak this same group of people. Um, So Matthew 2 verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. The key phrase here is during the time of King Herod. That's not just a statement um, to mark a date like Paul Knapp was born during the first George Bush administration. By, right, by saying that, it's framing some very important context, right? Our minds instantly go to the Gulf War, the Berlin Wall following, Saved by the Bell. Like, we instantly go into 90s nostalgia. And it's beautiful, but, but some names serve as a time machine for us, right? And many are personal. Like, I think of a long list of friends that when I think of their names, I'm instantly brought back you know, to our times in Lake Michigan and stuff like that, but some are very, very universal. And when Matthew mentions the name King Herod, it would have been one of the most universal time machines for that first century Jewish audience. So who's King Herod? King Herod had been given his throne by the conquering and then occupying Romans. It's, it's actually, he kind of weaseled his way in where the Romans never had to occupy Jerusalem. He just kind of gave it to them and be, in order to become king, in order to rise to power. The story is much more complicated than that, but you know, we only have a limited amount of time. So the Romans, they proclaimed him, they proclaimed King Herod as the king of the Jews. right? Not the king of kings, but the king of the Jews. It was a formal and legal title, and Herod was delighted to have it. He was determined to keep it at all costs. He was, a, he was essentially a Roman puppet, the kind of guy who would do, to do anything to stay king. He's a very complex man. He was one of the best builders in all the Middle East, Um, but he was racially, he was an Arab; religiously, he was a Jew, and culturally, he was Greek. And so, this alone just did not sit well with the religious people of, of Jerusalem. He he didn't really fit into what they thought a king should be. Yet, he was ordained by Rome to rule over them. Politically, he always sided with Rome. He never sided with his Jewish history, and his real loyalty was really to one thing, and that was himself. It was his own power and his own position, and he defended it ruthlessly. And here are a couple examples of that. So Herod, um, he murdered all of his predecessors and most of his successors, so they couldn't lay claim to the throne or lead a revolt. He just preemptively just got rid of them. Think Kim Jong-un on a good day, right? He literally, he literally, he literally taxed his people, he taxed the poor in Israel into homelessness in order to fund his lavish lifestyle. And he wasn't just cruel to the people he didn't know. Um, He had had over a dozen wives, and supposedly he did love one of them. Her name was Miriam. But at one point, he becomes so upset with her that instead of addressing the issue or going to marriage counseling, he has her executed, right? Right? But that's not enough. He then had two sons, or excuse me, he then had her mother executed. And then the two sons that they shared, the two sons that they had together, executed. And then one of his closest advisors that tried to come and defend those sons, saying, come on, dude, they're just kids, right? They're just kids, why would you do this? He had that advisor executed as well. At one point, he renovates the temple in Jerusalem, and he covers it in gold and tapestry, just this incredible ornament from ceiling to the, to the floor, just gold everywhere, which is not what the temple necessarily was for. But one thing unique that he does is he places a golden eagle on top of the temple for all to see. And the eagle was the symbol of Rome. Can you imagine how offensive that would have been to the citizens of Jerusalem? You can't even go to church without being reminded of the tyrannical system that has left you with nothing, right? Like, yes, you're coming to visit God, but just remember who's really in charge. At one point, some revolutionaries tear tear that eagle down, and we won't be surprised what happened to them, Um, and we'll leave those details for later. But when he was on his deathbed, his eldest son, Antipater, uh, was under the impression that his father had died and so, preemptively, he steps in and tries to, tries to lead and assume power. But Herod heard about this, and he had him executed. <laughs> and I'm not making this up. And then he died five days later. It's not over. Herod, of course, knew his reputation in Jerusalem, but it was unsatisfied that people would cheer and be excited on his death. And so, in his will, he left a list of names of beloved and prominent Israelites Right? These would have been like, it's a hard list to come up to, like an equally lovable group of people, but it would have been like Morgan Freeman and Taylor Swift. Like no, that, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Maybe, maybe messy, depending on how today goes, but we'll see. Anyway, um, on the day of his death, he orders that, and it was a long list, that this list of Israelites would be executed, so that he could guarantee on the day of his death that there would be weeping all throughout Israel, the, or the Roman historian Josephus he writes, "Herod never stopped avenging and punishing. Every day, those who chose to be of the party of his enemies." There is the holiday of Christmas, and then there is the history, and these are two very, very different stories. The Bible continues on because that was just verse one. This is. verse 1, continuing, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. These are the wise men in the story. The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, the Bible says he was disturbed. I think that was an understatement. He doesn't want the Magi to know that he's disturbed. And so the Bible continues. It says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly in and found... the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. I think we've seriously underplayed the role of the Magi in this story. These are are like covert spies sent by King Herod to go figure out where Jesus is so that Herod can do his thing. Uh, He wants to make sure that this newborn king Is taken care of. But the wise men, the magi, here's the twist, they never report back to him. They never come back to him and say, this boy is the boy. And so for most people, this would have have been a huge problem, right? Like, how are we going to find him? That was our one shot. For King Herod, this wasn't a huge issue. The Bible says that when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem, and in its vicinity, who were two years old and under. Matthew 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in the time of King Herod. That is not just a way of saying when he was born. It's a way of saying Jesus was born into a world that was bloodthirsty and violent and filled with oppression, poverty, and systemic injustice from every angle. The holiday of Christmas is filled with light, peace and love the history however feels far removed from any kind of peace So when I was when I was about Bo's age, maybe a little bit older, four five, six years old, I starred in the Christmas Spectacular, The Christmas Star, hosted by New Hope Community Church in Traverse City, Michigan. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, it was my stage debut, really the moment where it all started. Uh, and as that moment approached, I can remember I'm, I'm I'm brought back there now. I was nervous, maybe the first time I ever actually felt nervous or ever actually. Place, that memory of nervousness, um, but I felt confident, right? This was my chance. I had one line, um, but it was a critical one. Uh, the leading role, who was played by Christian Brower, the, the children's pastor's son, just a little bit of nepotism, um, he was, his role, the young star, he was auditioning to be the star that would lead the Magi to find the baby Jesus in Bethlehem, and I got to play the jealous fallen star that was tasked with jeering the young up-and-coming twinkler. Um, and so my line, I remember it, you couldn't shine your way out of a paper bag. That's all I had to say. Nine words. Supposed to be easy. It was a done deal. So my moment comes, and the lights shine on me, and I can still see the faces, all the faces, a sea of faces in the community center gym. that as they were waiting for me to deliver it. And I hesitate. I paused. And I paused too long, because I forgot my line. It was gone. It left my brain entirely. And I feel it now like it was yesterday, right? Like, is actually very, some PTSD happening. I can hear the inner dialogue of my brain rifling through its notes, trying to come up with the words. And I stammer out a couple, like, you could. But I couldn't find them. And so defeated, I exclaimed into the microphone, oh, shoot, I forgot my line, and I ran off the stage and ran out the back doors, (laughs) abandoning my fellow first graders on this stage. It remains one of the more formative memories of my life, especially when I think of church. Um, (laughs) We know those Christmas plays, right? We've seen them, we've been in them, we love them. They're cute, and they're innocent, and they're lighthearted. Um, We live for those moments when somebody runs off the stage or forgets the jingle bells. Herod missed that part of Christmas. He missed that theme almost entirely. His decree to massacre all of the firstborn sons in Bethlehem became known as the slaughter of the innocent. Herod sends his soldiers into Bethlehem, into the homes of peasant families. They don't even knock. These families are powerless to stop them. They break in and then we find a little boy no older than two. They take out their sword, and you can imagine what happens next. We sing songs with words like, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. It's an that is just an accurate portrayal, that's just not an accurate portrayal of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a bloodbath, it was panicked, it was hysterical, and it was grieving. There's the holiday of Christmas, and then there's the history, and they're two very, very different stories. When when Jesus was born, all was not calm, all was not bright, and that little baby did not sleep in heavenly peace. Because Jesus was born, he was born with a bounty on his head. Imagine this for a moment. Mary and Joseph, they get warned in a dream. They get warned in a dream that Herod's coming for their son, and so they flee Bethlehem. They run away from Bethlehem, and they take refuge, get this, They go to Egypt. So let's just step back and take all of this in. Jesus is born in the time of Herod. His mother is a homeless, unwed teenager. He has a bounty on his head and immediately becomes a fugitive and a refugee. And he's raised in a hostile, foreign country where he's the wrong race, speaks the wrong language, and believes the wrong religion. And all of this begs the question, why? Why would the God of the universe, with all the power and timing at his disposal, why would he choose to be born in the time of Herod? Why is this the moment that he comes in these horrific circumstances? Right? This is no holiday. This is the fascinating part about history, isn't it? History is not about history. It isn't about the past, it's about the very present. And I think the same is true for the story of Christmas. Right? If Christmas is just a holiday, then it's just lights and it's just songs and snow and cookies. But if it's history, if we claim it as our history, it, if, this is, if this actually happened, if Jesus was born in the time of Herod, in a real time and a real place then the history of Christmas, is telling us something about who God is, and what he is like. And even more than that, it's teaching us about who we are as well and what we're supposed to be doing in this world. Jesus is willing to come to us, to be with us even in the worst times, in the scariest of moments. He's willing to enter into our real lives right now, just as we are, no matter how bad or scary our life and our world looks. God with us. God is with us no matter who we are or where we are. And he's born in the time of Herod. He's born in the time of Caesar Augustus. And it's in this amazing history that God would choose to come to us. And What could that history mean for our present reality? Well, let's consider, let's consider the history of the people involved. Let's start there, right? Do you ever think about Joseph's Christmas? Think about what he asked for and what he got for Christmas? Being a part of this story, he lost his prized possession. The only thing he truly has as a peasant now is his reputation. And now, everyone knows he's going to be married to a pregnant teenager and that that baby isn't his. Joseph, he's being told, Joseph, beyond your reputation, you will lose your home, you will lose your job, your family, and your country. You're going to take your fiancé and this small child, who are totally dependent on you and live as a fugitive from a mad king, as a refugee in a hostile country. Merry Christmas. I've gotten to meet folks from all walks of life uh, and all kinds of different seasons of life, and at first, it surprised me, like, wow, I am not alone, right? Life is confusing and chaotic and painful for other people, too, but now, I just know that no matter how well we hold it together on the outside, we all have or have had or currently right now are living through a Joseph moment, right? People talking about you. You're living on the run. You're looking over your shoulder. You're worried about the safety and security of your family. You're anxious about how you're going to pay the bills, especially this time of the season. Here's the thing. I think the history of Christmas points us back to the purpose of Christmas. If you are overwhelmed and alone, if you find that life is confusing and complicated and hard, that the holiday of Christmas won't do you much... then the, Excuse me, then the holiday of Christmas isn't going to do us much good. At best, it's just a short reprieve, a distraction, a shiny object. And at worst, it only adds to the stress of life. But if the history of Christmas, if we allow the history of Christmas to mean something, And Jesus is coming for the Josephs. He's coming for the defeated, the deflated, and the desperate. Those not knowing what to do or where to go. There's the holiday of Christmas. And then there's the history of Christmas. Let's consider Mary's Christmas, right? Here's another part of history that doesn't make it into the songs and the holiday stories. Eight days after Jesus is born, he's taken to the temple And there's an old man there by the name of Simeon. Think of Rafiki from The Lion King, right? And he holds up this little baby boy into the air, and he says a blessing. Um, And it's a beautiful moment. Anytime someone has a child, and you're with the mom or the dad to hold that child, to pray over that child, that is a moving moment. Those are moments as a parent that you will never forget. And so Simeon is holding this child up, and he says, Now, sovereign Lord, dismiss your servant in peace. I have seen the salvation I have been waiting for. I have held him in my arms, and I can die a happy man. Of course, Mary and Joseph are probably glowing at this, thinking, yes, we think he's special too. In fact, we're told that they marvel at Simeon's words. But he has one more thing to say, and he says it directly to Mary. And you have to picture this moment of pride and joy. Think about how Mary feels after she hears something like that. You've got to imagine all the refugee and fugitive stuff is set aside for this moment to believe in the hope of this baby boy. But Simeon hands Jesus back to Mary, and he looks her in the eyes, and he says, This child is destined to make many fall and many rise and to set up a standard which many will attack. For he will expose the secret thoughts of many hearts. And for you... And for you, your very soul will be pierced by a sword. Mary gets it. She knows what Simeon is saying. Mary has got to be wondering what she did to deserve this, right? She doesn't understand what Simeon... She understands what Simeon is trying to tell her. This son, this boy is going to be different. There will be no grandchildren in this future, right? What is being asked of you is going to devastate you. Do you know that kind of heartbreak? I hope you don't. The pain that comes from seeing someone you love so desperately struggle and suffer. Maybe you worry about their future, foresee a life that will have too much hardship in it, more than you can embrace or can shield them from, or can shield them from. This is what Mary is living through in her Christmas story. For the holiday we sing, it's, a wonder, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? with the kids jingle-belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. And Mary gets, and a sword will pierce your soul. There's a holiday, and there's a history. They're two very different stories. One last person we want to consider in the history of Christmas, you know who it is? The baby, the child, Jesus, right? In the ancient world, they weren't particularly sentimental about children. The odds of a child growing up to adulthood, they weren't great. To be a child was to be dependent and defenseless and fragile and vulnerable, always at risk of abuse and neglect, oppression, and actually much worse if we think of the time of Herod. So here is Jesus as a baby. Here is the Son of God. Here is the God of the universe coming. Jesus as God, the child. Jesus is God utterly vulnerable. Jesus is God rendered completely defenseless. Jesus is God exposed to all the evil in this world. That is Jesus at Christmas time. If this Christmas you feel vulnerable or weak or helpless, exposed to risk, if you feel like you don't have enough strength in you to make your life look like the holiday postcard, know this that Jesus has been there because he hasn't come for Christmas. He's not coming for the holiday, he's come for us. Jesus said, "I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." Jesus changed and became a little child for us. It was a bold and crazy and reckless act of love. And yet on the holiday we sing, "Our cheeks are nice and rosy and comfy and cozy are we." There's a holiday And there's a history, and they're two different stories. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that the holiday of Christmas is wrong or the traditions are bad, and that we shouldn't celebrate peace and the coming of light into the world. I love it all. We need those warm and fuzzies. We need those creature comforts. But this is the bottom line. The holiday isn't going to rescue us. The holiday of Christmas is something we must do. The history of Christmas is something that has been done. The holiday of Christmas is something that we must enter into. The history of Christmas is someone who desires to enter into our very lives, to change us in real ways, not to rescue us from the rule of a corrupt politician or or Joseph Shatter's dreams or Mary's broken heart, but to save us in them, in spite of them. That is the history of this amazing love.
1: swept in like a tidal
0: If you know what it's like to live in the time of King Herod, to have your dreams dashed, to have your heart broken, to feel as vulnerable as a child, then you already know that the holiday of Christmas, it's not going to do very much good. But the history, the history of this moment, Jesus was born into the worst of all possible worlds to prove to us that he's willing to enter ours. The question is not how will we celebrate this holiday. It is how will we respond to the history, the present reality that Jesus isn't coming for Christmas. He's coming for us. So may you see yourself in both the history and the holiday of Christmas. May you rejoice in the unbelievable gift of God's arrival on earth. May this child, this baby boy, born as a refugee, As a fugitive, as a peasant, as an outcast, may this baby boy be a reminder of how far we've come and serve as a notice to how far we have to go. May you know that he came for us, and may we return the favor. Friends, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Merry Christmas. We'll see you next Saturday for Christmas Eve.